So that entire intro of the crash and the lighthouse and the coming down into rapture, that's what they added to the 99%, and that's what made it work. I actually am really attached to my personal interpretation of the very beginning of that game, (laughs) and the fact that it may be a frivolous addition really hurts my soul. Well, I don't think... What's up? Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. And this is our analysis of Bioshock. 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 If you are new to our podcast, I say this at the beginning of each new series, this is primarily a storytelling analysis podcast. Um, We are mostly going to be, we mostly look at what we think are some of the greatest stories ever told in video games, in games, yeah. uh, games or stories that we think rival or are on in the same ballpark as the greatest works of literature and film and that sort of thing and try to highlight those. Um, so usually in our first episode, we will dive into development history, get to know the developers of the game, the creators yeah. behind it and what some of their intentions were. Then we'll play the game and each week do it in a little bit of a book club format where we play a certain section. The audience also does so and it comes back and we discuss what we played that week. Yes, for that reason, we avoid late game spoilers until we reach that point in the game. Correct. So whether you have played the game before or not, you should be able to enjoy this without feeling like you're going to receive any spoilers. And specifically for this game, it's going to be really, really important that we do that. I'm going to try to be Mm. ultra careful in reading quotes and talking about dev history to not give away some of the the bigger twists of the story because they're very, very good, and I would not want to ruin that experience for anyone. So Well, interesting. So I don't know the twists, but I might pick up on things as we go. Yeah. My apologies. Oh, yeah. Case, pro- I guess we should, I'm occasionally we should probably mention that, wrong. too. Usually in these podcasts, one or the other of us has yeah. not played the game before, whether it's I've played it before in case it hasn't or whatever. <laughs> We've only done one game before where neither of us had played it. Yes. Um, I have played Bioshock. Case has not played Bioshock. I have so not played it. You can, you can kind of watch someone's first reactions and guesses and things like that going through as well. That's another yeah. uh, thing people t- tend to, they, they tell us that uh, they enjoy about. Yeah, podcast, good. So, I'm aware of the game. I watched my brother play it a little bit once, but I know very little about um, the ultimate story. Okay, so in but order what to... what I do know is that it's based at least in part on Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Yes, we're going to talk about that quite a bit. We are. In fact, <laughs> um, I'm going to try to read that whole book this week, so okay. we'll see what happens. All right, so... Um, in order to talk about the developers behind this game, we have to talk a little bit about the studio Looking Glass. Ever yeah, heard of the studio? Right. In the 90s. Yeah, they were uh, big in the 90s, and their big games, uh, well, I would think the biggest ones that pertain to or relate to Bioshock in particular are System yeah. Shock. System Shock. And System Shock 2. Yeah. Um, which and then uh, Ken Levine worked on a game called Ninja. Ninja, uh, The Shadows... Uh, thief? Uh, the Dark Thief. thief. That's thief. it, not yes. Ninja. The Thief Sorry. series, yeah. Thief, uh, The Dark Project. Yeah, he worked on that one. So, yeah, the experiences on developing Thief and System Shock in particular yeah. really kind of led into a lot of the gameplay ideas that, that went into yeah. uh, Bioshock. And System Shock's a little more RPG-ish, I think, right? Yes, and um, yeah. but uh, also kind of, well... I guess Bioshock kind of has a little bit of a horror vibe to it too. Yeah, uh, for sure. But System Shock, yeah. uh, System Shock, I think a little more so. Mostly, okay. Um, uh, system uh, Bio, you can look at Bioshock as almost like a spiritual successor to 
the system yeah, shocks. I'd read that, and I was actually surprised uh, to see that that the spiritual successor to a thing became a hundred times more popular oh, than sure. the thing itself. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, I don't know how often that happens. Yeah. Because um, I was looking this up just in preliminary research, and it's like Bioshock. Had, this game sold like like twenty five million units. Just this one game. Yeah. It was or twenty. Anyways, popular. the whole series has sold closer to forty million, which is like, I didn't know it was this popular. I didn't know we were dealing with like a game that was in line of basically like Mario or Pokemon. Like this is incredibly, yeah. incredibly uh, high selling game. Two things on that. Um, first of all, one one thing that I'm I, I thought was really funny uh, doing research into this was how many people we're pointing to this game yeah. as being like the final proof. See, games can be art kind okay, of a thing. Okay, okay. I think part of that is what you're talking about. It yeah. was a mega seller like that. And mm. not a lot of people have played something like Silent Hill 2 or, <laughs> or <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Xenogears. Yeah. And so yeah. there are a lot of people in the mainstream, I feel like, um, uh, critics and things like that, making these types of statements that I thought were absurd and hilarious because yeah. it's like you haven't played a lot of games if that's what you think. But it's interesting to me that um, th this resonated with people on kind of that that yeah. level. Um, the other thing, though, was talking about spiritual successors being more successful than the than the original, or, or the spiritual successor, yeah, being more successful than the original game. Um, I, I can think of at least a couple of examples. Uh, Dark Souls being a mega hit after Demon's Souls. Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, that's and right. then like something like Xenoblade after Xenogears that's or Xenosaga. That's true. That's true. So yeah. it does happen uh, from time you're to time. Right, but, you're um, right. Anyway, uh, Ken, Ken Levine, yeah, uh, is kind of the brainchild behind Bioshock yeah. and the lead developer on, on this game. So we're going to be talking about him a little bit and uh, some other developers, but there was a specific interview, and um, he was asked, is Bio a true sequel or prequel to System Shock 2, or is it a spiritual successor? Ken Levine says, Bioshock has absolutely no relation to the System Shock series in terms of intellectual property, character setting, etc. However, it is inspired right. by the... Right, legally he's got to say Of that, course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is inspired by the open-ended design principles pioneered by Looking Glass, Right. Uh, Irrational is dedicated to maintaining that tradition. So Irrational Games is the name of the division in 2K, yes. which developed Bioshock, yeah. which was made up of many, many of the people who came from Looking Glass. Mm. So he says, Bioshock is also uh, being created by the majority of the team who created System Shock 2, and many of these games which helped inspired it. Um, this group includes me, John Che, project lead, Steve Kimura, art, uh, Mauricio Tejerina, who did art, Nate Wells, art, uh, Ian Vogel, design, and Alex K, design. Uh, when Looking Class went out of business, rest in peace, man, that place rocked and the world will never be, uh, they never got the credit that they deserved. Um, we were able to hire Eric uh, Brosius, sound guru who created the sound for both System Shock 2 and the entire Thief series. So that I guess someone who was oh, nice. contracted for those but wasn't okay. a part of Looking Glass. Um, Dorian Hart, who did design on, on Shock 2, Thief, and Terra Nova. And Sean Robertson, who did art. Darren Lafreniere, that looks like a French name to me, yeah. programming. And Sarah Virilli, uh, design on Thief. So a lot of people who worked on either Thief, 
System Shock, Terra Nova, these were all looking glass games, kind of all came together within uh, Irrational Games, which is a branch of 2K. I think it was 2K Boston for a while, but they ended up renaming it as Irrational at a certain point. Yeah. Um, in fact, I believe Irrational Games, uh, let me look at this real quick, because it says uh, Looking Glass Studios uh, was an American game developer based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, they were f- it was founded by Paul Neurath and Ned Lerner as Blue Sky Productions in 1990 and merged with Lerner's uh, Lerner Research in 1992, became Looking Glass Technologies. It eventually became Looking Glass Studios. Hmm. Um, following financial issues at Looking Glass, the studio shut down in May of 2000. So this is when a lot of those guys moved over to 2K because I think Ken Levine went to pitch Bioshock to oh, yeah. a bunch of developers and something like that and it it was turned down initially because um the game apparently um shock what's it called system shock system shock system shock 2 didn't sell all that well so when he shows up saying hey we got system shock 3 they were like yeah thanks but but no thanks right Mm -hmm. but he was really passionate about it so he kept working on it anyways um but he couldn't actually put very much money into it Mm mm-hmm yeah, would invest. yeah. So he tried to pitch it to Electronic Arts. Yeah, yeah. As, as, as System Shock Three, yeah. they rejected that idea because it didn't sell. System Shock never sold all that well. I think mm. System Shock was a PC exclusive game. Oh, really? So that that's probably a big part of the reason reason why. Yeah. Um, so uh, they ended up making a bunch of games at Irrational uh, in between System Shock Two and Bioshock. Um, some of which uh, they used as like experience to learn like the first person yeah. shooter genre, you know, to, mm. to get like, you know, really familiar and to make sure that they knew their genre they were going to make right before they actually decided to do Bioshock. Yeah. Um, but it, the whole time it was something kind of in the back of Ken Levine's mind, you know, something in the style of System Shock 2. That was really what he wanted to do. And they were kind of developing that even while they were making these other games, developing the ideas for it. Um, and so, uh, the, the kind of core gameplay mechanic, and this is something he's talked about a lot too. He, and, and we've, uh, touched on this in, in previous podcasts, you know, do you go for a story first approach in design uh, or a gameplay approach first in design? Or, Both, or, or maps first. <laughs> or maps first if you're a Xenoblade <laughs> developer, right? Yeah. Um, Anyway, there's not really a right or wrong answer to which is right. correct. It's more just based on, you know, what are you really trying to accomplish exactly. with your project? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken Levine is is a gameplay first uh, philosophy. Yeah. That's his philosophy in terms of development. He thinks you've got you to take care of your gameplay first and then you build your story around that. I am a little shocked to hear that. Um, really? Playing... Bioshock. I, I picked it up. I played the first, I don't know, hour or so of it. Um, like the gameplay is like interesting. I don't know, maybe it's yeah. just because it's from 2007. But uh, yeah. in my opinion, the story far outweighs the gameplay, in my opinion. I, and maybe I'm just not a huge fan of first persons, though, really. I'm not either. Okay. And, which is why I'm kind of so excited about this one. Yeah. Because despite the fact that I'm not a big first person shooter mm. fan, um, this game is is still considered like one one of the best games ever made. I mean, I yeah. think its aggregate scores are like upper nineties across the board. 
almost, almost no matter where you go. It's like a 96 out of 100, almost, every, which that's is, pretty good. It, I mean, that's one of the most highly rated games of all time. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. But the story seems to me to clearly be the focus or maybe the reason why this game is so popular. I could right. be wrong about that. Maybe it was just the gameplay and people loved it. No, I, I agree with you. Okay. It, it is a shock to, to kind of hear that because yeah. I think the story is what really stuck with people. People don't, when they talk about Bioshock, they're not talking about the gameplay. <laughs> they're not talking about the gameplay mechanics. They're talking right. about the story. And it, I was also shocked to learn how many iterations of the story this went through in development. Yeah, me too. It was a quite different game, even just like a year before. Yeah. You know, it, it went through a ton of changes. Yeah. A ton of changes. And it was like five year development, I think, from 2002 yeah. to 2007. And so they kind of they kind of came up with this gameplay mechanic first, mm. which was this idea of three groups of forces. You, you, and these, that's genius. Rock yeah. paper scissors almost. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. So you've got the what? You've got like a resource, like a drone that uh -huh. gets resources. Yep. Then you've got the protector that protects the drone. drone yep. But then you've got the extractor. What would what would be the harvester? Word for that? A yep. harvester that comes and takes the resources from the drone while the protector is trying to protect the drone. Yeah. So and those three, you've got something of like a rock paper scissors kind of thing going on. Yeah. And that's genius. That's really right. smart. And to have the whole game like take place around those three things, I wonder if uh, playing the game. It's not even really that apparent that that's what they're doing in the game. Right. But it's cool that that's the core of, of the whole, like, philosophy for development. Because as I'm playing the beginning of it, it's just like, you know, you're just, you're, you're killing stuff. You know, you're playing a game, right? You know, things are trying to kill you and you're defending yourself. I don't see so much of the element of those three. But I have approached something along the lines of a little sister, big daddy. You know, I have approached the, the, the trio and I am seeing how they are kind of at the core of all of this. Right. Because the drones have something that everybody wants. Yes. Right. And right. it's like, I'm slowly seeing how it works. But it's so funny because I wouldn't have guessed that that was the core behind the gameplay. I yeah. would have guessed something else. Yeah. I it's, love this though. It's, it's so it's good. It's really interesting because if, if you have that as your starting point, this is what the game is. It's this, like you're talking about, it's these three sort of factions uh, yeah. kind of uh, fighting over resources. That's like the core of what this gameplay experience is sure now where do what what story do we write around that i mean that's I, right. I, I mean that's a pandora's box almost there's so many directions yeah. you could take that right, right. and that's kind of what they did um i i uh, probably about like three years ago uh maybe 2019 2018 i for a very brief period of time was considering um, coming on board to write the story for an indie game uh, with some indie developers. Oh, yeah. uh, I was involved in probably the first month or two of like really early stage planning for this. And I've said it many times in the past that if I were making my own game, mm -hmm. I would take the story first approach where I write sure. a story I want to tell and then I build gameplay systems that support that story. Right. That's just my personal philosophy. That's how I would do it. But for this game in particular, they, they already had they'd already done a lot of programming mm. and they'd already kind of come up with like, you know, some mechanics and things that they wanted to use. And so, you know, I was trying to really ask them, okay, like uh, I, I felt it would be better in that case since they had already done a lot of work. We should develop a story around some of these things you guys have already made. Mm. What do you think about Smart. if we add this mechanic to it? Is that something you think you could do? Because yeah. like then, then the gameplay experience would more or less be this. It would be, um, it, it kind of ended up being like a, a survival, like an outdoor survival kind of thing with some mm. horror elements. Um, 
uh, and uh, a first-person perspective, okay, now I can start thinking of some stories that would like maybe support that gameplay loop. And so mm -hmm. they had a lot of different directions they could take this. Um, so one of the first uh, ideas that they had, right, was this idea of a, of a cult deprogrammer. So Yes, I read this line. Yeah. This was, this was kind of... Um, <laughs> Kind of creepy, actually. Yeah. Yeah, this it, is very good. So this is apparently something, you can hire somebody in real life to do this. Yeah. Somebody who would uh, go and like basically kidnap somebody who's like in a cult and bring them out and deprogram them yeah. from the cult and like reintegrate them into society. But there's some kind of dark places you can take this as oh, well, which yeah. is kind of where they were uh, hinting at going with this, was a <laughs> senator or some kind of yeah. political figure who wants to deprogram as an example, this wasn't something, I want to make sure this is really clear. This was not in the concept that they wrote, right. but it was an example that Ken Levine was sharing as an example of something that could have gone into some, the, the gameplay concept they had come up with. Yeah. Perhaps some senator who's, I don't know, say like a far right-leaning po politician wants to deprogram their lesbian daughter or right. something like that, right? You're trying to like take somebody who is making these choices with their lives or feels this way, and then because of my, right. uh, you know, the people I'm appealing to in politics, I'm gonna reprogram, take that will away from them. Because that's another big thing in this game is the idea of will, like free will. Oh, sure. Right? Oh, yes. So um, so that was kind of an early concept, and, and they sort of came to agree relatively early on into mm -hmm. that concept. This isn't exactly where we want to go with this. This is probably a little too, too controversial and, yeah, too and political. Yeah. Maybe we should change this. So then it becomes like a, a World War II, like a post-World War II thing with like experiments happening in an underground lab and like, again, a yeah. very different concept from what Bioshock eventually became. It, it, it took another almost full, going back to the drawing board story-wise before they arrived at the idea of rapture and an yeah. underwater uh, city and uh, re, uh, making uh, the little sisters as the, the drones, the big daddies as the protectors, yeah. and the splicers as the harvesters, harvesters. right? The, the th but the three-faction core gameplay is still there. It was yeah. there from the beginning. That was always what they wanted to do with hmm. it. But it took three iterations of story to arrive at one that they felt they could all kind of get on board with, right? Yeah. So really, really interesting uh, uh, history of how that kind of came around. And yeah, it took, it took many years uh, for them to kind of come to that. So let me pull up some quotes about this. While you're doing that, I did want to bring up something real quick. So the System Shock franchise has been sold um, and has kind of exchanged hands a few times. And there mm. were different developers who were looking to do something with System Shock, especially since Bioshock was so successful. Um, but it has wound up, it's in China now. <laughs> so <laughs> a company called Tencent, which is um, a big or, well, one of the biggest companies in China, um, they currently own the rights for System Shock for mm. the whole franchise. And I don't know what, exactly what they're going to do with it, but um, that's where it is right now. Yeah talking about how early pitches uh, set the core game system against the backdrop of an abandoned Nazi genetics lab or a sci-fi um, environment. They got like um, unearthed later. Yeah, uh, they, yeah. they weren't exciting cool. enough to grab publishers' attention. Mm -hmm. uh, Codemasters passed, it on, passed on it 
as did Atari and EA. Even when 2K, part of Take-Two, signed the project in 2004, the game was a shadow of what it would eventually become. So here's a Ken Levine quote. It was not Rapture. Uh, Andrew Ryan didn't exist. The Big Daddies and Little Sisters, as you know them, didn't exist. It was just this idea about game systems. Take-Two bought it on that basis, on the basis of the three-faction gameplay system, not on the story. Wow. I'm not exactly sure why they did that at the time. I think it showed a lot of vision on their Mm. part. So clearly they were just um, impressed with uh, the developer's background working on System Shock and weren't so worried about what the story would be, but the gameplay itself, that sounds like something that Mm. would sell. So like, we'll go with that kind of thing, right? So it took a long time for them to get to this, but it wasn't until Ken Levine started thinking about objectivism and uh, was, you know, reading Ayn Rand a little bit that he sort of began to fall on like, okay, we know what this story is going to be now. So again, I really don't want to spoil anything in terms of the twists and turns and, and the, the incredible, like impactful, huge moments that come later in this game. So I'm going to really dance around that, but I do think it's important. And this is kind of really the, the real purpose of our podcast, right? It's not, when we talk about, it's a storytelling podcast. We're not talking about, let's regurgitate and summarize every detail perfectly and uh, talk about all the lore surrounding it and just be, it's not a lore podcast. This is a storytelling technique. Right. It's like we're analyzing the art. Yes. Within the game, not necessarily, you know, the, the who said what's and you know, the, the internal lore. Yes. And, and the thematic core yeah, is what we're really trying to dive at here. So I think when you're playing this, it's important to kind of know what they were going for there. So, um, mm. and, and and one other thing, <laughs> we have to say this a lot too, just because we're going to bring up certain philosophers or people and their ideas as we talk through the podcast does not mean we necessarily espouse the same ideas. Right. Um, a lot of times we'll, we'll discuss it in a way in which we're having a discourse about it and we're trying to explore that idea to its conclusions and kind of yeah. like, you know, so it may seem sometimes like, oh, are these guys, you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> we're just trying to like talk about it as freely as possible. So Ayn Rand is an incredibly, um, controversial person, yes. uh, writer, thinker, uh, and no, we do not agree with everything Ayn Rand says there, and neither is Ken Levine. That's kind of like the main point here. Right. Um, but yeah. a lot of those ideas are going to show up, and so we're going to talk about them, and we're we going to suggest you read uh, Ayn Rand in order to really like get a full understanding of what this game's going for in terms of its exploration of objectivism, which was a huge yeah. Uh, philosophy of Ayn Rand. In fact, that's um, something maybe we could explain real quick. Sure. Um, so objectivism is basically the idea. It, it, it eliminates any type of outside forces that act on on uh, humans. Basically, it's saying objectivism says that there isn't a god, and that there isn't any. That the best way to get the most abundant like life, the the most abundant amount of resources, is through. Uh, a system that incentivizes greed, 
basically. Mm. So it it does take into account human motivation, which is something that most ideolo- ideological systems don't do. Uh, most ideological systems say, hey, here's a great system, isn't it great? And then you say, yeah, but you're putting people who are not great into your great system, yeah, an and they're going to break it and an destroy ideal the ideal that might not necessarily yeah. account for human failings and flaws and right and how would that really work out in real life now so what ayn rand does with objectivism takes a very so it's capitalism it's very hardcore laissez-faire intense libertarian like well more or less anarchist really um capitalism um which is just you know whoever is like a meritocracy like if you're good at something then you get money for the thing that you do completely unregulated unregulation yeah yeah. none of that stuff that people will regulate themselves because the greed would lead towards them providing a service or product that didn't have issues right and you'll always get people taking advantage of that and then um yeah and then the absence of god is actually really important it's not just that ayn rand was an atheist it's that um she does not like the idea of an external force like judging or of, of you doing anything that's outside of your own will, the, whatever you want to do and find a way to make it happen. It's sort of Nietzschean. It's like a will to power kind of thing. It's like, don't worry about somebody else who's telling you that you can't do something or that you shouldn't. That might be the word that you shouldn't do something mm. like the superego, right? Yeah. Just do do what you want as best as you can, and the greed will lead you to do it in a way that other people will support, as opposed to just you know something like that. I'm trying to think of what else. All That's of your Iron people are probably going to tear me apart for this. <laughs> well, it's and, just and again, it's capitalism, <laughs> atheism, and um, greed being the primary motivator. Those are the three. And the more I talk, the more I. Um, show that maybe I'm not an Ayn Rand person who knows her philosophy inside and out. But that's it. Those are the three. It's it's more about the general idea. We'll get into more of the details, you know, when they're necessary. Um, but I think it's also important to point out maybe oh, why. absence of government, by the way. Yeah, absence of government. That would sure. be a fourth one. No government, please. Yeah. So no government, greed, no God. And um, the last one is um, capitalism. Yeah. Um it's also maybe important to understand a little bit of why she might have developed some of these things. Uh, yes, that's being, good. Being a Jew who was, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of Jews during that time period, of course, they, they lost their homes. They were yep. displaced. Yeah. Um, this World War II time. I mean, obviously, the Holocaust is, is happening. Yeah. Um, so th- there's certainly like a cultural sort of... Um, Fear, maybe not fear is the right word, but a, a, a consciousness, yeah, I guess. Like an anxiety, yeah. A, an anxiety about yeah. displacement, about like finding a home, about yes. not feeling like you belong in the place that you're at. This mm-hmm. isn't really my culture. This isn't really my home. We we need to find our our a place that's ours. Yeah. That sort of developed from that, and you can kind of see how uh, fleeing from oppressive governments. Forces. Which she was in the Soviet Union. That's right. that's worth bringing up as well. She was under a horrible, oppressive, like communist regime that was just awful. And of course, her reaction to that is one eighty complete yes. opposite of that. The like, opposite total extreme. Zero authority. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that and I think that's important <sighs> to bring up is that yeah. this this game is not really setting out to be like a flat refutation of objectivism or Ayn Rand necessarily. And I, I actually like that it's not that, because it's not preachy in that sense, right? What it's more doing is showing how uh, ideological extremes 
tend to be idealistic in a way that does not account for human failing. Sure. It does not yeah, account yeah, for the yeah. fact that when the rubber meets the road and this idea has to meet reality and it has to deal with real humans <laughs> trying to yeah. live in within those uh, uh, ideologies and those ideals, it tends to not go the way you think it's going to go right. for, as an extreme thinker who has kind of an extremist view. Right. Right? That's really more, I think, what Ken Levine is doing with this. Sure, sure. Right? That so, makes sense. And by the way, any of you, because I know there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people who are very sympathetic to Ayn Rand and um, like her a lot. Um, I have, um, you know, I am aware of uh, a lot of people like that. So, <laughs> so um, please um, comment, and because I know I, I'm sure that we both just butchered her philosophy and that you could do a better job. Um, we're open to that. We aren't yes. like prejudging what well, we are a little bit, but <laughs> we aren't intending to completely dismiss her completely. Um, right. I would love to, you know, read some um, opinions in the comments and people saying, hey, this is, it might be worth it to bring this up because this would help make her philosophy seem a little bit different. Um, that's fine. I'm, I'm totally open to that. Um, I have not yet read Atlas Shrugged. I will be doing so in the next week yeah. or two. And then I will hopefully have a better idea of her, of her opinions on everything. Well, and, and I think it's important to add to that and, and sort of reiterate from past podcasts um, that that is the entire purpose of discourse. Right. Right, is... Uh, allowing, and that's the reason why we kind of structure this the way we do, where we have, we leave the comments open, we try to read them, um, where people come in, we'll add things that we don't know about. We, we, we don't claim by any means to be experts on all these topics we talk mm -hmm. about and we encounter in these games. We can't be, right? right? We try to do as much research as we can. We try to become more knowledgeable about it. We're trying to expand uh, our own understanding of a wide array of, uh, a wide array of f philosophies. And, and new science that we might not be aware of, but we're not experts in any of it. I, I didn't, you know, study this stuff for years and years and years in college and become a, a political scientist or anything like that. So um, we're, we're going to be enlightened just as much from the comments yes. and the audience. This, this is why this is a book club format. Right. We're not teaching you. We're starting a conversation and a lot of things we're going to learn from what you guys have to offer. And I have always believed it's important to wrestle with uh, ideologies you don't agree with. Oh, yeah. I think it's very important to with, an, with an open mind and uh, in, in, to not be disingenuous in like seriously considering and steel manning people who you might think of as your political enemy or on the opposite political uh, spectrum from you um, because you will in, the, in the, the, the process of that discourse find the places in which your own uh, thoughts and feelings and beliefs do have holes in them mm -hmm. and you can work to address those things yeah. and readjust. And so, you know, I feel like it's really important to do that. Um, it's really important to reconsider your beliefs. Uh, always do that. And to, we don't have to accept the parts of this that we know are flawed, <laughs> uh, this philosophy. We, we can, you know, find the pieces that maybe do make sense and throw out the ones that don't. And everyone is encouraged to do that, of course. So, yeah. um, I'm uh, mostly just saying like, don't like kill us or anything because <laughs> like we're, we're going to learn and I, we will have our, our viewpoints will likely evolve throughout the course of the podcast. Um, I also want to bring up in addition to Ayn Rand, there's also George Orwell 
yep. Aldous Huxley, John D. Rockefeller, and Walt Disney, who yep. among possibly others, but these are the primary people who are being explored. Their ideas, their philosophies are being explored within this. Uh, the biggest difference is with Orwell and Huxley, I mean, Rockefeller, it's kind of just the story of his own life, I guess. Um, with Walt Disney, I don't know. He explored these things to an extent, but um, Ayn Rand was the utopian version. Yes. Whereas Orwell and Huxley were the dystopian, right? Yes. And it's, it, in some ways, it's easier to write a dystopia. It's yes. easier to envision a dystopia. <laughs> so, like, kudos to Ayn Rand for trying to be utopian, but at the same time, the utopias don't exist. I don't think And they so exist. you've got, of course, she's the one that you're going to pick on and say, ha, ah, here's where you're wrong. See, George Orwell got it right. Huxley got it right. But that's because Huxley and Orwell were being pessimistic. Yes, right. And, and you know, anyways, that, to that extent, um, there's going to be some of that there. Yeah, and that a lot of the ideas embodied in these people you're talking about, um, they're, they're kind of embodied in a, a specific character. I'm not going to mention anybody okay. because I, I'm, I'm really trying to be careful about spoilers this time. Um, but they're embodied in a character specifically. I think you'll, you'll find that very yeah. soon as you begin playing. Um, and again, I don't think we're meant to come out of this uh, purely condemning uh, this, this character we're talking about. I think that, that yeah. you're meant to kind of see that uh, even ideologues right are are human and that there might be good intention there often is good intention sure. behind it but good intention can only take you so far uh when you have to meet reality so gotcha. that i think is a pretty good way of summarizing some of the thematic core of of what bioshock is is really going after mm. um and uh, if you if you're thinking about these things make sure cuz another thing is this game story is delivered in, in more than just cutscenes and dialogue, you'll got to find a lot of sort of like, um, you know, like tapes with, uh, extra bits of, um, of, of this kind of thing okay. from, uh, characters in the world and things like that. Uh, th there's little audio recordings that you'll need to listen to. Make sure you're looking for those. Make sure you listen to them and pay attention to them Oh, good. because they're really important. Good. Uh, don't try, don't miss them. Don't try to like go to the next area too quickly. Make sure you've really explored and you've really tried to find as many of those as you can because they're very, very important for this game. Um, uh, so I just wanted to read this real quick. Uh, the thematic core of Bioshock was born when Levine was walking at Rockefeller Center near the GE building in New York City. Mm. He saw the uniqueness of the Art Deco styling of the building along with the imagery around the building such as the statue of Atlas near it. Keep that in mind too. Well, specifically, Atlas, Atlas. is a reference to yeah yep. the the Titan Atlas in Greek mythology. Yeah, I suspect we'll be talking about that later. Absolutely, <laughs> um, there's definitely a character we'll be talking about as well in regards to that. And recognized that these were spaces that had not been experienced in the first person shooter genre. So he liked the aesthetic hmm. of that kind of architecture and art. Art and decos like twenties, thirties, forties. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, right. A lot of New York, old New York, it looks like that. Right. And so the aesthetic of Rapture, this city under the water, really embodies that kind of style to it, and yeah. which makes it really unique, Bioshock really unique aesthetically from kind of any other first-person shooter. That, that's what he was really looking for was like, what can we make that's going to stand out, right? Um, the history of the Rockefeller Center also fed into the story concept. Levine noted how the center had started construction prior to the Great Depression when the primary financiers had pulled out. 
John D. Rockefeller Jr. backed the remaining construction to complete the project himself. As stated by Edge Magazine, a great man building an architectural triumph against all odds. Okay, so this underwater city, you'd think that's impossible to build a city on the, <laughs> on the ocean bed, you know what right. I mean? Um, but kind of, and again, the, the, this game takes place in a similar time period, so it's like, I'm not trying to give, I'm really trying to be careful not to give too much away, but th these are some of the things that inspired um, the city itself, the, okay. the person who built the city, the ide ideology of the person who built the city, mm. and and all of that. So, um, let's see. Let me do a switch there as I look for the next point I want to talk about. Uh... I'm going to hold that off for when we're actually playing the game. There's one other note I want to bring up here. Okay. So um, Bill Gardiner, who is one of the – he's like the chief uh, level designer for the game, um, took a lot of inspiration from Resident Evil when making Bioshock, and in particular mm -hmm. Resident oh, Evil yes. 4, yes. which had come out uh, pretty recently, uh, just before Bioshock came yep. out. But they loved the pacing. They loved the – just the, the feel of the game and how scary, especially at the beginning parts. So mm -hmm. the game designer took a lot of inspiration from Resident Evil. Yes. Um, I actually think I have. This comes from, uh, I want to get his name right, Bill Gardner. He was a developer on the game. Yeah. Relatively speaking, the team on Bioshock was way outside our weight class. I don't remember the exact number, but we had about 50 people in-house working on that game plus some outside help from Australia. That's compared to a game like Assassin's Creed, which came out at a similar time, which had maybe 300 people working on it. Sure. Um, for the longest time, one of our core goals was to find that balance between System Shock and finding a way to balance our audience. Because um, System Shock, like I was saying earlier, was a little bit more of a horror, like a straight horror kind of setting. Hmm. Given that we were bringing it to consoles, there were a lot of challenges there. Uh, let's see. So they turned to to Resident Evil 4 specifically because it was a horror game that had tremendous success on consoles. Hmm. Um, there's all these nods and all these little elements that I think you can see where Resident Evil inspired us to take the general complexity and amp it up. Uh, in a nutshell, Resident Evil may very much uh, give me the confidence to say players can handle it. In fact, they're hungry for it this type of experience, right? Because mm. I think horror games maybe had been considered more of a niche, not like a mega yeah. seller type of genre, right? But it's Resident Evil 4 kind of proved that wrong. Um, they really want to get more out of their environments, out of the combat and out of the tools. And he speaks specifically about they were super inspired by the open-ended nature of the way they designed maps. Because no, uh, yeah. like when you think of the very first... Uh, little village square in Resident Evil 4, oh, yeah. right? Where he kind of gets ambushed by all those people. Yeah, yeah. There's so many ways to approach like surviving true, that. There's yeah. so many tools. There's You can go in houses. You can avoid yeah, that. Yeah. You can pick up tools around the environment. Yeah. You can run around and just sort of avoid people. You can, there's so many ways to do it. And the, depending on how you choose to do that, it kind of changes what happens. Because like if you go into the house and try to get the shotgun in there, then you're going to bring out chainsaw uh, guys, which are some of the toughest enemies in the game. I mean, mm -hmm. they get up to you, it's like a one-hit kill kind of thing. Right, I remember that. Yeah. So, They're the scariest. Yeah, so like 
things change depending on how the player approaches the fight. And that was a big inspiration for them in how they designed hmm. Bioshock's nice. uh, environments and an approach to combat and everything like that. Um, goes on to say, at the time, there was a lot of question regarding what people would tolerate in terms of complexity. We were, because they're doing a first-person shooter, a lot of first-person shooters at the time were, even if they weren't on rails, they were might as well have been, mm. very linear. <laughs> yeah, You just go here, they pop out guys, That's you shoot true, the guys, yeah. you go to the next point, you, they pop out, you just shoot a bunch of guys, right? Yeah. Um, we were positioning ourselves as a shooter, and there's a real pitfall there if you're a shooter and you don't scratch the right itch in terms of what the expectations are for a shooter. Resident Evil was a survival horror game, but they eventually added in all these combat elements, these tactical elements that made you decide, am I going to jump out this window or go out this door? Am I going to take out or what tools am I going to use? It had this interesting design and tactical elements that I would show the team all the time. And I think that that was really what was a big seller of Resident Evil 4 for me in particular. Like, I liked Resident Evil 1 okay. I had dabbled with it, but I hadn't really ever, like, loved that series prior to that Resident Evil yeah, yeah. 4. Yeah, not me neither. 4 was just a revelation, though. It yeah. was so cool. And I think, I think yeah. reading this, this is what made me realize, I think this was what it was. It was, like, that tactical element to it. Like, the other games had more of like the survival aspect where like the, the you had a, only a certain number of cartridges you could use for saving and typewriters. And if you ran out, you couldn't save the game anymore. That's you know crazy. what I mean? That's crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very limited ammo. And, yeah. and certainly there's an argument to be made for people who loved that series early on that that was lost in Resident Evil 4. But what you gained in Resident Evil 4 was this. There was a lot of choices as to how you approached fighting and surviving your way through this uh, nightmare village of yeah. mind-controlled <laughs> people. And that so that was kind of like a, a huge driving inspiration for how they approached uh, designing Bioshock as well. And, of course, like the, the horror vibes that you'll get from Bioshock, I'm sure some of that was there too. Kind of going back to the objectivism thing. Um, I think mm. we covered that pretty well in terms of our, what we wanted to add to that, but I do want to read sure. Ken Levine's quotes about it. So in this interview, this was with, um, looks like Shaq News. Um, they asked him, do you think you gave up objectivism a short, hold on. Do you think you gave objectivism short shrift at all? I'm not an objectivist. I'm just curious as to how you respond to that. Ken Levine said, I'm fascinated by objectivism. I think I gave it, I think the problem with any philosophy is that it's up to people to carry it out. It could have been objectivism. It could have been anything. It's about what happens when ideals meet reality. If you had to sum up Bioshock's story, that's what it is. Hmm. So I wanted to just really like punctuate what we were saying with that quote from the horse's mouth, I guess. Yeah. Like that's at the core of the theme of Bioshock. He says, when philosophers write books, when they write fictional works like Atlas Shrugged, they put paragons in the books to carry out their ideals. I think Virtuous. this is very true. Yeah, um, well, in some ways, um, Ayn Rand's idea is that greed is a better way to act than virtue. Yeah. Or than um, altru um, altruism. altruism. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, uh, because altruism, you just can't trust that people are always going to act altruistic. Yeah. But you can always trust that people will do what's in their personal self-interest. Right. And so through that, but then in 
in illustrating that, she then maybe picks altruistic people. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out when we read the book. Yeah. So I always wanted to tell a story, or sorry, um, they put paragons, paragons in the books to carry out their ideals. I always wanted yeah. to tell a story of what if a guy wasn't a paragon? What if his intentions were really good, but at the end of the day, he was human? I think that's where the problem is. It's not an attack on objectivism. It's a fair look at humanity. We screw things up. We're very, very fallible. Hmm. You have this beautiful, beautiful city. And then what happens when reality meets the ideals? The visual look of the city is the ideals. And the water coming is reality. Hmm. So, you know, I, I really great. like that That's line beautiful. quite a lot. Because yeah. architecturally, rapture is really quite astoundingly it's beautiful. It's something else. Yeah, it's It's cool. really cool. Yeah. And it's buried in water. And that represents the reality of the you fact know, that the ideals cannot be met because yeah. fallible non-paragons tried right. to carry it out. I, I can almost see a parallel there in the fact that this city is mostly underwater. And it's like, idea, theoretically, you can build a city underwater. Yeah. But realistically, yeah. eventually, the water's going to get in, right? <laughs> At some point, right? At some point, the water if will get in. If you don't keep fixing it forever, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's going to be a leak somewhere. It's like there's a, an, like, it's it's just the ultimate hubris. I remember in our Final Fantasy X um, podcast, I talked about how mm. possibly not smart it is to build your city over a river or over yeah. a lake because it's going to it's gonna fall into the water. Yeah. Well, how much worse of an idea is it to build a city underwater, already underwater, yeah. right? And it's like, you're, you're, you're just, you're asking for it. It's the ultimate act in hubris almost. Yes. And it's like, yeah, idealistically you could do it, but realistically the water is going to get into your city and you're all going to um, get flooded out. Yeah. That's interesting. 100%. And once again, like we're discussing his opinion of Ayn Rand. I don't know. I almost, yeah. I almost am more interested in, in Ken Levine's idea of Ayn Rand than specifically Ayn Rand itself, at, yeah. at least for the purposes of what we're doing here. Sure. Right? At least his take is that, oh, there's all these problems and he's illustrating them. And like, great, now now it's time for the Randian people to to refute that with their own fiction, you mm-hmm. know? Like, great. Yeah. And this is kind of how a dialogue works. You know, he's yeah. presenting one, one side of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and another thing I kind of want to bring up too, because we, we started to touch on this, we're talking about Ayn Rand's Jewish background. Oh, yeah. Um, Ken Levine also comes from a Jewish background. Oh, okay. uh, he considers himself culturally Jewish, not religiously so. Not religious. But he grew up in New York, uh, along a lot of, uh, around a lot of Orthodox Jews in, in okay. a culturally Jewish area, and he admits that this is something that maybe wasn't intentional, but maybe subconsciously kind of made its way into the game. It's something he he admits to after the fact, not mm-hmm. not something he was like really thinking about while making the game, um, but kind of those, some of those ideas I was talking about, that sort of like anxiety about displacement, not feeling like you have a home, yeah. um, worrying about what happened in history. Could that repeat? Could so, it happen again? So in some ways he's very sympathetic to Ayn Rand yes. and, and to her, yes. her opinion. Because in Atlas Shrugged, um, there is a place called Galt's Gulch that John Galt, it's his escape. He's escaping from government. He's escaping. He's founding his own little utopia mm-hmm. out in, you know, separate away from government regulations and stuff. And that's very similar. That's basically what Rapture is yeah. in Ken Levine's work is right. like, it's more or less Galt's Gulch. Right. I mean, and you'll see this in a lot of the names of characters. They have very mm, yeah. kind of traditionally Jewish names. Oh, oh really? Um, okay. and, and so look for that too. Uh, one thing, if you haven't seen our podcast before, 
Kaysen has done a lot of reading and a lot of research into symbolism, and so um, right. he'll. I, I'm really interested to see this game what, is going to be crazy, man. Yeah, I, I can already <laughs> tell. I'm an hour in, and I've just got pages of notes. I'm like, yeah. it's everywhere. You're seeing like posters and like ads and just the names of things and statues, and it's all so meaningful. Yeah. And so I think it's important to kind of have this context, the, some of the, the Jewish cultural context, okay. to uh, look for that and, mm. and you can kind of see what you can pull from that, too. Um, uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting about this game, and this seems to be true about a lot of things that kind of end up being lightning in a bottle type uh, experiences where it's just like a lot of things go wrong. Almost everything seems to go wrong or it, it seems to indicate it's not going to be a success yet it's a success anyways. All the experts mm. seem to think, yeah, this isn't going to work, this isn't going to be and good. And that happens a lot. And then it just culturally explodes. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know the Beatles, when, when it was a, some of the first people to hear the Beatles perform initially before they had signed on any records, yeah. and they said, yeah, this music's a fad, it's on its way out. Like mm. guitars and yep. stuff. Like, yep. no, no, That's not going to do it. And it's like, yep. there, there's a quote, I think it was at Time, it was either Time or the New York Times, one of the two, that ran an, ran an article in October or November of 1903 mm. saying that man would not achieve flight for centuries. <laughs> centuries. <laughs> and one month later, the Orson, uh, the Wright brothers yeah. uh, flew, flew, achieved flight for the first time. Like, right. That this happens. This happens all the time where all the experts agree and then they're all wrong. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, they went through these... The development was just very much not smooth. Yeah. Um, hmm. People disagreeing uh, within the team. I, I know that this is probably true of a lot of people who were uh, maybe a little bit more in the know about Ken Levine and like just development history of games and do a little bit more study on developers themselves. He, he's a little bit controversial in, in terms of uh, the the crunch he, he puts his teams through or has done in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, not making a working environment that's really conducive to the, the, yeah. the mental health of the people. A lot of <laughs> um, his employees didn't seem too excited to work with him again. Yeah. After that. Right. And because uh, it's it's in part like, you know, you go through a crunch time at the end, you know, when you're getting your game ready for launch. But he was able to convince the publisher to give them to delay the game, to give them a few more months to keep working. Yeah. And that didn't, you would think that, okay, guys, we got time. We can do this now. Let's, let's not, you know, slave away. Let's not, like, kill ourselves trying to get the, the deadline. Uh, instead, Ken Levine said, oh, sweet. Instead of three months slaving away and working to death, you now have six months to slave away and work to death. He didn't lighten up at all. Even, not at all. Even with the extra not time. And even after the game came out, he said, you know, I would have liked another six months yeah, to really needed, polish it the It needed another six months, I think, to really be perfect. And I just said, like, yeah. oh my gosh, man. I mean, I get it, you know. it's But at the same time, the game wouldn't be what it is without him, without his vision, sure. without his, you know, direction. And so, I don't know. Like, I get not wanting to work for him anymore, but at the same yeah. time, you want to work for somebody that's that's making waves, and yeah. Ken Levine made waves. Oh, certainly. Um, and and I mean, they were told multiple times, whether it's by playtesters, by yeah. internal uh, people in 2K. I think he was approached by somebody who put his hand on his shoulder and basically just told him this game's going to be a failure. Like, <laughs> sorry to sorry to to break it to you, man, but like this uh, isn't going to work. That, I wonder who that guy was. Um, in fact, I think I want to find that quote exactly yeah. and read that because I thought it was. That was really great. That is great, man. On one of the interviews on Bioshock, the collection, you describe watching a focus group play the first game without understanding it or even liking it. 
He said, the focus group test guy sort of patted me on the back and said, sorry, this game is going to be a failure. That was one of those moments where you either well, accept the fact that somebody tells you you're a loser <laughs> or you double down and say the fight's not over yet. You know, though, I had heard that in testing, this game did not test well. No. That people really didn't like it when they first played it. And no. that was before they made some changes after that. But I really wonder what game did, they, did those people play? Well, he goes on to say, this is really interesting. So before that focus test, did you regard the game as finished? He says, it was essentially done. We thought it was good. We thought it was cool. We mm -hmm. thought it was Bioshock. 99% of what you see was already there in this playtest. So what few we things came did in, tweak? This is fascinating. Huh. We came in on a Saturday. It was a Friday night, the focus test. Uh, there were eight of us sitting around a table. We're all miserable. We're like, well, what do we do? What do we think is missing? Because we can't make something new. What is already there that they're not connecting to. Hmm. We decided it was who they were, what their identity was, like connecting with the character, okay. the main protagonist. Sure, right? but it's, but it's we POV, came up, it's first person. Right. We came uh. up with a very cheap way to add the opening scene, and I'm going to say this because it's just the very opening scene, so it's not really okay, spoiled, okay, yeah. with the plane crash. So that wasn't there in the, in the original sort of oh, like really? testing. They added that opening with the plane crash. Wait, that I wrote one line. We had this idea that you'd be smoking a cigarette on a plane, which set the time period really well. Because of course, sure. today you can't smoke on no, planes no, no, or any no. public space like that. In yeah. that time period, you could. We wanted something right away that would not just say it with text, but would put it in your soul. So that entire intro of the crash and the lighthouse and the coming down into rapture, that's what they added to the 99%, and that's what made it work, which so, is crazy because this is one of the best intros in the history really of video good. games. And, but here's, it's fantastic. Okay, so this is crazy because the way that you read that, that makes it sound like the intro is more or less disconnected from the, all the rest of the game. But it feels so integrated. It feels mm -hmm. so like almost at the core of what they were doing. So I think what they did is they took like a thematic idea. They took like a core of of their work and, and extracted out the idea of the, the prequel of this plane crash happening yeah. um, from what they had already had going on. Because I actually am really attached to my personal interpretation of the very beginning of that game. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it may be a frivolous edition really hurts my soul. Well, I don't so, think it is frivolous though. <laughs> I think he's thing. saying that it was, it was, it was everything. It, it was, it's small in the scale of like yes. what was left to do, but it connects it yes. connects things. Yes. Okay, good. Exactly Because right. if it was frivolous, then that means my interpretation is certainly wrong. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> okay, good. I think, he's, I think what good. he's saying is, is that we had to find a way to get people to connect to this yeah. great game that we knew was there, and they weren't doing it. So this okay. intro was what got it there. It's what connected people to the okay. character, to the city, in a way that made them invested in it. Without that intro, you, they weren't getting there. Okay. And so the intro was everything. Well, I have. I, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about what the intro is because the intro is everything. Yeah. And that is so shocking to hear that that was almost an afterthought. I just yeah. can't even, because that is what makes it. Yeah. It I mean, seriously, it it's, it's, it, it, we've talked about a lot of intros in the games we've covered. And, yeah. and how important, the most important part. how important the yeah. hook is to the story. And that's why there's always so much symbolism in an intro because you really have to like pack so much meaning there as people are going through. And like, it's almost like when you're, when you're writing a book, mm -hmm. 
chapter one, page one, chapter paragraph the first one. First sentence. The very beginning is so important. It sets the tone for everything after yeah. it. They talk about this all the time to authors writing books. Your first chapter, your first paragraph, your first sentence needs to hook the yes. reader. The yes. very first sentence they read, they have to go, oh my goodness, that's crazy. What, what happens next? Why? Yes. Because if you don't hook them right away, it doesn't matter how good it gets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? In chapter 20. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it doesn't it, you've got to hook them right away yeah. and, and set up the promise. Your intro is your promise to what they can expect if they stick with it, if they give you a chance. It's almost like it doesn't actually matter what you do <laughs> with the other 19 chapters of your book. If chapter one is yeah. really well-crafted, people will read the whole book yeah. and they will probably love it. Yeah. And and that was essentially what they were missing. They were missing yeah. a good hook a good at the beginning one. That, yeah. that really got their audience invested yeah. in what's happening. And the rest of it was great. The yeah. rest of it was great. Um, we're, we're starting to run a little bit low on time for this okay. week, so there's just kind of one more thing that I wanted to read, and, um, and then we'll kind of wrap up at okay. that point. The one thing I would bring up here at this point is that they made the whole game on Unreal Engine, Unreal Engine 2, using features from Unreal Engine 3, so they call it Unreal 2.5. <laughs> yeah. So this game was made on uh, a later version of Unreal Engine 2. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of lead into just kind of the last point I'm going to make about how this convinced so many people, apparently, that games could be art. <laughs> no, good. <laughs> you got like Rolling good. Stone and not like yeah, necessarily yeah, traditionally um, game-centered sort of critics and outlets yeah. saying this kind of thing about Bioshock. Um, so uh, question here was, have you played Bioshock since then? He says, I played Burial at Sea, the DLC for Infinite, right, mm. the other day, mostly to see what it looked like on my new 4K television. <laughs> I don't really enjoy playing my own games. If I could still get paid, I would, I would make games and never ship them. I don't enjoy shipping games. I think it's kind of dreadful. That is stressful. Yeah. yeah he I says, understand. why? He says, you're exposing yourself in a very real yeah. way. You're saying, this is what I worked on. Now go make a judgment about me and my work. That's not always fun. The real warm experience is being with the team making it. Hmm. And then the question, if you were still making Bioshock and you hadn't shipped it, what would you be working on? He says, I wouldn't work on it forever. I would have finished it and then put it in a box. Bioshock probably could have used another six months to a year yes, to make it I perfect. Read. But eventually okay. you have to stop. The gunplay was good, but not great. We didn't have a ton of experience with that. Right. And the ending lagged a little bit. And then they talk about mm. Final Boss, which I won't discuss right now. Okay. Um, another criticism of Bioshock was that when you choose to save or to... Okay, never mind. I won't go over that part. It was just that part I wanted to say. He, he's even admitting here, the gameplay, even though the gameplay was kind of the primary focus, that game core gameplay, was not really, and I think you, you're already mentioning this in your first you know, exposure to it, it's not mm. like the greatest first-person shooter of all not time. Not really, no. No, that's not really what makes Bioshock great. It's interesting. The fact that this was the game that seemed to convince so many people that games could be art is mm. the part that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I kind of have to laugh at that because we've already discussed so many games on our <laughs> podcast yeah. that came before Bioshock yeah. that we're doing just as many interesting thing, things thematically and from an artistic perspective, both in the, the gameplay and storytelling department 
uh, and just the art department, I guess, visual. Uh, the, but it, it's, it's, it, as, as much as it kind of like irks me to hear somebody say like, I, I think I had a quote, I'm not gonna try to pull it up because we're running out of time. Mm. Like this is the game that finally proves it. It's like, dude, oh, come you, on. You, you, that. you haven't played Silent Hill, you haven't played <laughs> uh, Shadow of the Colossus, you haven't played right, right. you know, some of these Final Fantasy games we've talked about. You know, there's so freaking many. Um, but that this is really at the core of what we're trying to do on the podcast. Yeah. And that this is a perfect candidate. This game is a perfect candidate, whether you enjoy first-person shooters or not. I don't. It appears it's not your favorite thing in the world either. Not really. I've I've gotten some mileage out of them in the past, but I don't. I'm not that good at them. Yeah, really, is the problem. Yeah, and and I don't love them. Right. Yeah. Nevertheless, this is the type of game that I think people who appreciate games for the reasons we do must play. I, I think you yeah. cannot. You cannot be a person who appreciates games as art and not have played Bioshock. Hmm. So I, I, I extend this as an invitation to those of you who watch our content because you yeah. like JRPGs, for instance, to, to play this game with us. It's, it's really that good. The, 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 the core of what this game is exploring yeah. is that thought-provoking and interesting and just like uh, in, in somewhat, somewhat of a similar way, I guess, to how we've talked about having life-changing experiences with some of the movies and games that we talk about. Okay, yeah. This is on that level. Okay. And so I'm really, really looking forward to diving deeper into it. There's a lot well, of things exciting. that I researched and, and read in terms of um, interviews and, and quotes that I can't really talk about yet because I'm so worried about spoiling anything. <laughs> uh, but I will bring them up as we go on. So this was a little bit shorter of an episode as... Yeah as an opening or as um as a lead in and a development history but we will bring up some more points as we go through it uh just for the fear of not trying to spoil anything okay um i've got a few things right here at the very okay. end we've got this wonderful this as far as what as far as i can tell other than the books that we've mentioned or the um philosophers and writers and people that we've talked about um I feel where I'm going, just so everyone can get in my headspace with all of this. I've played the first hour, and so far we've got Atlantis, which is obvious, mm -hmm. Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, just general hubris, uh, Gnosticism, yep. and the Greek um, Atlas, the Greek uh, legend of Atlas. Yep. Um, like, And that's just, first of all, some of those should be very familiar with things <laughs> that we've talked about in the past. Yep. Um, but it's all there. Like we're going to get this kind of stuff. There's also the garden of Eden and, um, like a ton of archetypal stories are kind of like being, being put together here. And I'm excited to see where it goes. I have yep. not played this game. I've not beaten it, which means I'm not allowed to talk about games as art <laughs> until I beat it. So I got to beat it now. No, I'm excited. This is going to be great. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Hope really looking forward to it. We hope you guys enjoy it. Join us again next week as we get into the opening chapters. Um, we haven't been as good at this lately. I'm going to make sure this time that I give a breakdown to you so that of, of like what, oh, what to play up until when? Okay. for the whole series. And, and hopefully when you upload it, you can put that into the pinned comment. Like this is where to play up to. And you'll, you'll know each That's time because right. I've sent okay, it to cool. you ahead of time. Because he hasn't played it, so he doesn't know what yeah. to expect. So I'll try to get that to you uh, real soon. And so look for okay. that in the pinned comment. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. We appreciate you, and we will see you again next week. Peace out.